This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Alright friends, let's um, settle, let's settle down, settle down, get ready. Um, welcome, whether you've just come from down the hall or you have come from down the road, um, we're really glad you're here tonight um, to join in this particular conversation and um, to be part of our summer lecture schedule. I just want to flag a couple of upcoming lectures for you local folks who might want to make, make, make your way back. Um, next week, Ben Kais will be lecturing on revisiting the Lord's work in the Lord's way, which is kind of a core Libri idea. And the week after that, July 1st, um, a friend of ours, a friend of Libri, she was a student here and a helper here, and she's done um, her graduate degree at Gordon-Conwell now. Uh, Shauna Kurihara will be lecturing on beauty as soul care, caring for the garden of your soul. So... That's what's coming the next couple weeks. Um, And tonight, we are talking about the gift of not knowing yourself. And we're going to be learning alongside Simon Peter. The gift of not knowing yourself. Really? (laughs) You might say? Yes. Really. Uh, Like... Many Libri lectures, this idea was prompted by noticing a disposition and a preoccupation that I have occasionally seen in some of our guests, and I have certainly seen in myself, the preoccupation with myself, and a disposition of certainty that I know myself better than anybody else does. So let me be clear from the outset. I do agree with the great thinker, John Calvin, that the two main pursuits in life are uh, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And I agree that it, it starts to become, at least from our perspective, pretty indecipherable to know which one begets which one, which knowledge begets which. Um, and I pray even now with St. Augustine of Hippo, may I know you, God. May I know myself. And I find uh, David Benner's, I didn't bring his book over here, but David Benner's concluding statements in this little book, The Gift of Being Yourself, quite compelling. He writes, Nowhere is the uniqueness of the Christian spiritual journey more apparent than in the Christian understanding of the self and its relation to God. The self is not God, but it is the place where we meet God. 
There can be no genuine spiritual transformation if we seek some external meeting place. God's intended home is our heart, and it is meeting God in our depths that transforms us from the inside out. You can't say it much clearer than that. The self is not God. And there is wisdom in the cautionary aphorism, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) If we habitually blame our problems and the things that we see in ourselves that we don't like on our circumstances or on other people or on the dinner that we ate last night, um, and we fail to turn and face ourselves, warts and all, we will spend our lives running from God's grace while running ourselves into the ground and hurting many people along the way. The love and the belonging that we long for will always feel just out of reach because we refuse to really come to terms with ourselves and to let that self be known. So yes, I definitely believe there is a gift in knowing yourself. My title is admittedly a bit tongue-in-cheek. Before we go any further, I'll just give you a little outline on on where we're going here. Um, Have a little image for us to frame um, tonight, which is two guardrails, so I'll talk about that. Um, I want to just kind of clear some ground as we get into the lecture, talking about a, a qualified knowledge of self or why we need what I will explain to you in my thinking is the second guardrail. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, opposing the self as a sovereign text. And then we're really going to spend the bulk of the evening turning to scripture, to Simon Peter's story. I'm going to give us kind of a, a broad brush overview of his story And then we're going to zoom in on two particular series of events in Peter's life. And we're going to end with what I think is Simon Peter's moment of true heroism. And then we'll open it up for discussion and conversation. So as I go, um, you can just be flagging things that you're like, hmm, I want to come back to this or ask more. We can have plenty of time to talk. So... As I've worked on this lecture, I've had this sort of image in my mind of being on a road. Last week with Esther, we wandered through a forest. And tonight, we're on a fairly treacherous road. Um, We might call it the road to restored humanity. Um, And on one side, there's a sheer drop-off And on the other side, this rock face cliff, and we just really need some guardrails. Where are the guardrails? On one side, we need a guardrail to catch us from plunging off the cliff of self-obsession. And on the other side, we need to be prevented from smashing headlong into the wall of cluelessness about ourselves. I don't think we generally live in a time when not asking, who am I? What makes me me? 
is the problem. I think we generally live in a time and culture where these questions are our only preoccupation. We rather like living on the cliff edge of self-obsession. And so I want to put a plug in tonight for the guardrail on that side of this road. And I'll just call it the guardrail of maybe I'm wrong about me. We live in a time when the Google search personality test generates 816 million results and the search know yourself generates 4,710,000,000 results. And so I think it's safe to say that we humans in the 21st century would like to know something about both how to know ourselves and what it means to know ourselves and that we're more than ready to offer each other all sorts of helps and tools to that end And in light of this cacophony of often dubious resources (coughs) to help us get to know ourselves, I think it's critical that we realize when we have turned the knowledge of self into an idol or we've turned a particular tool for understanding ourself into an idol and we've looked to it for peace or transformation or happiness or purpose or orientation in the world and in our relationships when we have looked to the knowledge of self for salvation, in other words, rather than looking to God. I also think it's important to at least be mindful, to at least cultivate some awareness when we're looking for a shortcut in the long process of getting to know another person or getting to know ourselves. That is lifelong work. Knowing your Myers-Briggs type, or her Enneagram number, or his style of influence, does not mean you know the person. It means you have a little information about them. Henry Nowen, thanks to Rachel for this quote, Um, Henry Nowen notes this. The truth about ourselves is that we are more than ourselves, more than what we can think or express, more than our physical presence, more than our personality and character. The problem with the excessive reliance on psychology today, and I am a psychologist is that we tend to give it the last word. But the beauty of psychological awareness is that it can point beyond the character qualities it describes to the person it reveals. Beneath any diagnosis or mental health problem, there is a person who carries God inside. Psychology can give us helpful language for the varied parts of who we are, But we need theology to remind us that we can never be defined by personality or any disorder. And I revisited Dick's book, Beyond Identity, which um, is a tremendous help 
in this whole big topic, if you have not yet picked it up. And in his introduction, he writes, Our struggle for identity in all its breadth can be best understood in terms of the character of God and our interaction with him. Our identity comes from a source beyond itself. It is an identity derived. This is profound, if not offensive, to modern sensibilities. A derived identity? And it means that first and foremost, our identity and true knowledge of ourselves is not merely informational. It is relational. You can only learn so much, and it is very little, about yourself from a test or a book on personality types or a spiritual experience alone on a mountaintop. We need relationship with God and with other people to really get to know ourselves at our best and at our worst and everything in between. In short, we best beware when we think we know ourselves, thank you very much, in an authoritative final sort of sense. And we best believe that we are wildly capable of thinking we are the experts on ourselves, even when we don't think we think this. Um, just to like bring this down into something pretty low stakes, but practical, I had an experience a couple years ago um, on a little getaway with two friends with whom I talked a fair bit about Enneagram stuff with. We knew each other's Enneagram numbers. And one night after dinner, we were cleaning up the dishes and putting things away. And I'm not a number one. But as we um, were putting things in the dishwasher, I was rearranging so I could fit more dishes in. And one of my friends said, oh, my gosh, that's such a one thing. Are you sure you're not a one? And what was really telling was how much I bristled at this comment. I full-on bristled, at least on the inside. Um, Maybe I was just not feeling particularly open to new information about myself um, and how others experienced me. Uh, Maybe this does make me a one. I just want to be right about me. I don't know. Um, But my reaction indicated me to me that perhaps I was resistant to receiving the gift of not knowing myself. Has anybody had an experience like that, where you've been identified as a personality or a type or something that you're like, no, that's not me. You don't know me. If you have, you're in good company. So how do we grow in true knowledge of ourselves? Knowledge that is not mere information about our type, our number, our style, but is relational and is really transformational. The other reason uh, we need this guardrail of um, maybe I'm not right about me, or to put it more philosophically, this guardrail of epistemological humility 
about ourselves um, is because in our time we do take the self to be the sovereign uh, text on our life. Uh, in his very passionate introduction and beginning to this book, uh, Eat This Book by Eugene Peterson, which if you are struggling to read the Bible, um, especially if you're struggling to read the Bible devotionally, maybe after years of academic study, I highly recommend this book. This book has been so helpful to me. And if you've been going to early morning prayer here and you want some more resources on Lectio Divina, this is a really helpful book. Um, In his his beginning of, of Eat This Book, Eugene Peterson writes this. The Christian scriptures are the primary text of Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality is in its entirety rooted in and shaped by the scriptural text. We don't form our personal spiritual lives out of a random assemblage of favorite texts in combination with individual circumstances. We are formed by the Holy Spirit in accordance with the text of Holy Scripture. God does not put us in charge of forming our personal spiritualities. God does not put us in charge of forming our personal spiritualities. We grow in accordance with the revealed word implanted in us by the Spirit. He goes on, It is a matter of urgency that interest in our souls be matched with interest in our scriptures. And for the same reason, they, scripture and souls, are the primary fields of operation of the Holy Spirit. An interest in souls divorced from an interest in scripture leaves us without a text that shapes these souls. And in the same way, an interest in the scripture Divorced from an interest in souls leaves us without any material for the text to work on. So friends, we are turning for the rest of the night to scripture. We're hauling our familiar or not so familiar souls into the light of the gospels. It's my prayer for us that the Holy Spirit would indeed plant in us his revealed word so that we might grow in our ability to receive the gift of not knowing ourselves. So have you considered the fact that the Gospels give us most profoundly four personal eyewitness perspectives on the person of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, And they give us narratives of various people's encounters with Jesus. A couple weeks ago, Dick commented that one of the remarkable earmarks of the Bible is that it is filled with narratives of fools. Story after story of screw-ups. Has it occurred to you that this is a tremendously generous gift 
on God's part and on the part of the humans who were telling their own story. So here's a question for you. Sort of like a party game. Maybe you've been asked this question before in a small group or as like an icebreaker or, you know, a get-to-know-you thing. Uh, If you could meet anyone, living or dead, biblical or not, who would it be? Does anyone have somebody leap to mind? They're like, Mr. Rogers, (laughs) Fred Rogers. The queen. The The current queen of England. My grandmother. Your grandmother. Beautiful. Yeah. Maybe Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. That was fun. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I felt I was going to say, like, let's just assume that we get to meet Jesus. You know, so everybody's like, okay, that's covered. And I can, like, say other people I'm interested in meeting here. I have to qualify that for myself, too. For me, it would be Peter. Simon Peter. Um, I have found a friend in this particular fool and I love him both for who I've gotten to know him to be through scripture and for how I've gotten to know Jesus through his interactions with Peter and this came up at a a lunch discussion I don't know a week or two ago but it, it, it came to mind as I thought of like the friendliness that I want us to feel here, like the friendliness of having having these people's stories available to us. And I, I want us to embark on a friendship with Peter tonight. And I, you know, like, I think Jesus, one reason he founded a people, he founded a church, was because we, we see Jesus more fully as we see each other. And C.S. Lewis writes a little bit about what I think I'm trying to explain in The Four Loves, in his chapter on friendship. He says, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. So I want to I, I, I want to I want to see Peter how you see Peter. <laughs> like that's the invitation and discussion. Like I'll get to become better friends with Peter as I learn about Peter from you, and I, I want to see Jesus in the way that Peter helps me see him. So. To do this, I want to um, give kind of a quick reconstruction of Peter's story. It will not be exhaustive, and I'm only looking at the Gospels. Obviously, his story goes on well into the book of Acts. There's more to think about there. Um, But we'll be concentrating on the Gospels, and then we're going to zoom in into a couple um, series of events in Peter's story. So to to kind of reconstruct his story, I'm going to assume some overall general familiarity with the gospel's accounts of Peter's interactions with Jesus. And instead of reading these many specific moments where 
or Peter's a, a key player in what's going on, I'm going to just put them on kind of a, a list, a listed, like a timeline. And it's a, a mashup from the four Gospels. Like I said, it's not going to be exhaustive. Um, and because the big question we're asking tonight is one of self-knowledge, uh, and living with ourselves when we realize we don't know ourselves as well as we thought, I want you to, to call to mind these events, and then I want to extend this party game of like, okay, maybe, say, say my wish came true, and we actually get to talk to Peter tonight. He's here. What are you going to talk to him about? <laughs> what, what would you say? Maybe you're like, I don't, I don't know if I have anything to talk to Peter about. So I'm, I want to challenge that. I think you do. I think you might have something to talk to Peter about. So here we go. I know this is small. I apologize. I'm going to say everything that's up here. So if you can't see it, don't worry. Um, recall Peter's calling, his first meeting with Jesus. He's at his daily job fishing. You might have something to talk with Peter about if you've wanted more than the life you currently have. Because I think Peter did. And I think that's why he dropped nets and followed. Peter walked on water to Jesus, quickly sank as he looked at waves and called out for help, was helped back into the boat. You might have something to talk about with Peter. Um, if you you have a weak faith that masquerades as, as a strong faith, and Jesus' words to Peter, oh, you little faith, resonate with you. Jesus asked his disciples directly. This is the one in, in Matthew's gospel. This is the one direct question to the disciples about himself that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? You might remember Peter's response. And maybe you'd have something to talk to Peter about if you've surprised yourself on occasion with clarity of conviction. And as Peter professed Jesus as Christ, Jesus turned and, and had a, a name for Peter. He called him Rock or Rocky, and we'll come back to this. And he had a lot of other pretty grand things to tell Peter about who he was and what he would do. So you might have something to talk with Peter about if someone in your life has had a bigger vision for you than you've had for yourself. Shortly after that, um, Peter heard some really hard words from Jesus um, in hearing that Jesus would have to die and be resurrected. Peter, Peter was like, no way, no dice. That does, that's, that's bad. Doesn't sound good. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So you might have something to talk about with Peter if you've ever been in a situation where you have felt like your intentions have been completely misunderstood and you've been demonized. 
Peter also was one of three disciples who uh, were invited up on a mountain to see Jesus transfigured, to see him in his full glory. You might have something to talk with Peter about if you've been quick to speak and slow to listen and have been embarrassed to find that you've totally missed the point of a holy moment. In order to pay the temple tax, Jesus told Peter to go fish for a fish and then pull a coin out of the fish's mouth that he caught. So you might have something to talk with Peter about if you've been asked by God, or anyone else for that matter, Mm -hmm. to do something crazy. One of Peter's questions for Jesus was, how many times should I forgive? Seven? So you might have something to talk with Peter about if you're a bit of a scorekeeper and you love justice and you're prone to holding a grudge. Peter promised utmost loyalty to Jesus And Jesus predicted Peter's denial of him. You'd have something to talk with Peter about if you have wanted to do great things for God. Peter, along with James and John, um, fell asleep in Gethsemane when they were asked to pray with Jesus. So you'd have something to talk with Peter about if you have literally taken a nap as a response to a demanding situation. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, okay, good. (laughs) Peter denies Jesus three times. You'd have something to talk with Peter about if you have done something that you told yourself you'd never do. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Jesus. Uh, Jesus appeared to Peter um, and the other disciples on a beach and fed them breakfast and had a very significant conversation with Peter. So, you might want to talk with Peter about experiencing a forgiveness that you are just starving for. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? You might have something to talk with Peter about if you've told someone you love them, but they don't seem to believe you. And last for now, um, at the end of uh, quite a, a deep conversation with Jesus, Peter was very concerned about what John's future would look like. And so if you're prone to comparing yourself with others and suspect that things are just easier for them than they are for you, you'll have something to talk with Peter about. All right. So that's sort of the, the memory jogger of Peter's story. 
and hopefully a little spark toward, oh, I could be friends with this guy. (laughs) And now I want to zoom in um, first on uh, a series of events in Matthew 16. And they're referred to here. It's the series of events where Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And he has words for Peter about who he is. And then shortly after, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So we're going to zoom in and I'm going to read this um, section of Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, and be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Uh, New Testament commentator Frederick Dale Bruner notes that this paragraph is the most discussed paragraph in Matthew. And verse 18, Jesus calling Simon Peter, is the most discussed verse in the most discussed paragraph. (laughs) Bruner writes, A great deal of the church's right understanding of herself depends on a right exegetical understanding of this verse. The Father has just given Peter knowledge of Jesus, and now Jesus gives Peter knowledge of himself, and through himself, Jesus' church. Uh, Bruner goes on to, to name what all the ink spilled is about. Um, There has been a historical interconfessional dispute here between Roman Catholics who believe that Jesus especially honors Peter's 
office and person, and so the office of Peter's successors, the popes, and the Eastern Orthodox and Protestants who believe that Jesus especially honors Peter's faith and confession here, and so the faith of all who succeed Peter in making the same confession of Jesus Christ. Um, I like Bruner's kind of quippy way of, of asking this question. Is it person Peter, or is it pointing Peter, whom Jesus honors here? Is it who Peter is, or is it what Peter does that Jesus honors? These sound like pretty critical distinctions when we are on the turf of identity and self-knowledge. Did Peter go away from this moment saying, Jesus loves me. Jesus thinks I'm really important. Or did Peter go away from this moment saying, Jesus really loves what I said. Jesus thinks my conviction is really something. Well, I I think I'm with Bruner when he says, really, the answer is both here. It is the person Peter, and it's the pointing Peter that Jesus honors. It's both. There can be no profitable denying that Jesus honors the actual person of Peter here and makes him foundational in the church. This very Peter, the Peter just given the gift of a good confession, pointing Peter, is made the rock. But it was this pointing Peter who was made the rock. So both points make this whole. I don't want to get bogged down here. I don't think we need to. The question of apostolic succession and the nature of the church is very important. But our question tonight is one of self-knowledge and identity. And what I want to highlight in this moment of reciprocal naming or renaming for Simon When he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus returns, you are Simon, son of Jonah, and I tell you, you are Peter, is the way that Peter's personal identity is forged in the fires of his relationship with Jesus. In Beyond Identity, Dick highlights the fact that our sense of identity involves both self-acceptance and internal continuity. Without self-acceptance, we live as our own enemy, nursing a destructive self-hatred. And without internal continuity, we're confused and we're insecure. How we live, what we say, what we do doesn't jive with what we say we believe. Remember, for the Christian, ours is an identity that comes from outside itself. Ours is an identity derived. And here we see Simon Peter experiencing the joy or maybe the overwhelm of finding his identity in Jesus. Clarity on who Jesus is leads immediately to clarity on who Peter is. 
Simon, when you are Peter, you're rocky. You're rock-like. You're like me, Jesus. I'm the rock you and everyone should build their house on. I'm solid. I'm sure. I'm not shifty like sand. You're pointing the world to me, the trustworthy rock. And as it turns out, when Peter's doing this, Peter is most himself. In a very real way, when we, when any of us answer Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And we can answer with conviction and clarity, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We too become rocky. Bruner notes this. To the best of our knowledge, the name Rock was not an ordinary personal name in either Hebrew, Aramaic, or in Greek. It would be more comparable to the American nickname Rocky and therefore would have to be explained, such as like, oh, the one who bears this name has a a rough and tough, beat-em-up kind of character. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't really care about being this kind of rocky. I don't really need to be rough and tough. But I really want to be rock solid. And just in the same way, I want to be like Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 when when Paul says, with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. This sounds to me like indifference to the opinions of others, even Paul's own opinion of himself. And for sure, this is a holy indifference. How might we become rocky like Peter and indifferent like Paul. Not by any self-improvement project, not by becoming gurus of any personality inventory, but by hearing Jesus' question again and again and answering it, who do you say that I am? And as we rightly recognize Jesus as Messiah, Savior, we hear him naming us. You're Rocky. You're Paul, the one so free in me so as to be indifferent. Which doesn't have quite the same ring as Rocky. I need to find a better, succincter way to express that. Well, if only we were always so clear, right? So wholly oriented and integrated, If only our self-acceptance and our internal continuity never waned. You are the Christ. And then Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anyone this. Why? Well, as it turns out, Peter sort of got it half right. He got the right word, Christ. But he had it paired with a badly flawed idea of what it meant to be the Christ. I keep thinking of Indigo Montoya in The Princess Bride saying to the scene, like, 
you did, I, I do not think it means what you think it means, right? Like, Christ, I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, as soon, yeah, inconceivable. As soon as Jesus begins correcting this flawed idea of what Peter thought it meant that he was the Christ, and showing himself to be a Christ who would suffer at the hands of the elite and be killed and have to rise again, Peter's rockiness goes from being an asset to being a liability. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Bruner writes, What this encounter teaches us, among other things, is that we not only err when we follow our worst thoughts, we as often and more seriously err when we follow our best thoughts, such as the fine thought of the connection between the mercy of God and the protection of the faithful. Surely God would not require this of Jesus. What happened to the rock who would be part of the foundation of Christ's church? Well, it turns out he's a stumbling block, too. Bruner, who's very much a reformed uh, theologian and commentator, has a sort of a little cheeky comment here. He says, Peter's very first encyclical is fallible. When Jesus made Peter the rock, he obviously didn't make Peter inerrant. Sometimes Peter has it right. Sometimes he doesn't. And that is the story of the Christian church, including her leadership from the day of her birth. Peter's are also Satan's. Like gives me goosebumps to say that every time. This is the story of Peter. The story of the Christian church, her leadership, and me. And you. As we learn to point to Jesus and follow Jesus, we are rocky, we are also stumbling stones. We have moments of holy indifference, and sometimes we're just plain old ugly indifferent. Can you relate to this? Does this remind you of yourself at all? Have you had a day like this with a super high high? You're on fire. You're at your best. Uh, maybe you were even conscious of liking yourself. You're like, yes. And then the lowest low, boom, it hits. You just blunder. And you blundered blindly. You even thought you were right as you were crashing and burning. How did that day end for you? How did you sleep that night? How did this day end for Peter? How did he sleep that night? Do you think he laid there awake, playing the interaction over in his mind again and again, making new speeches to Jesus to clarify his intention and make sure that Jesus hadn't misunderstood him? Do you think he nursed his shame We don't know, but I know that's probably what I would have done. I know that's what I do. We do know that a week later, 
Peter was one of three disciples chosen to witness the transfiguration. We know this much. Peter didn't leave. This whole series of events, this huge missing it, didn't didn't end in him being like, well, I'll go see what else is going on in town. Peter stuck it out. We know from another moment in John's gospel that Peter knew how to square his shoulders to hard truths. Again, after a difficult teaching, many disciples drop off and Jesus asks the twelve, do you want to leave too? Do you remember Peter's response then? Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Friends, even hard words about ourselves, get behind me, Satan, can be words that lead to eternal life if we let them. This, I believe, is the difference between knowledge of self that is merely informational and knowledge of self that is relational and transformational. So let's turn now to another series of events in Peter's life that I believe can help us continue growing in our identity in Christ. We're in the final hours of Jesus's life. Following along in Matthew's gospel, we read that Judas has made a deal with the chief priests to to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus has shared the Passover meal with his 12 friends, including Judas, and he's signaled to Judas that he knows what Judas has done and will do. He's reframed the Passover in terms of himself, establishing the Lord's Supper, the meal that will shape the people of God in Christ, the suffering Christ for millennia. Jesus and his friends sing a hymn, and they go to the Mount of Olives. And we read this. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples said the same. Here we see Peter so sure of himself, so sure of his loyalty and his strength, maybe so very sure of his rockiness, determined to set himself apart from the other less rocky disciples. Here we see Peter projecting for Jesus and the watching world his idealized self, Peter the brave, Peter the loyal, Peter the strong. 
What are you so sure you'll never do? What tops your personal list of unforgivable sins? Maybe we would assure each other they're not unforgivable to God, but they're unforgivable to me. I just couldn't live with myself if I... Because I think we, we've seen Peter's here. This was Peter's list topper. I couldn't live with myself if I abandoned you. In fact, I'd rather die than deny you. But as Bruner again notes, the real point of this passage is not the disciples, is not Peter's psychology. The text gives an impression less of psychological disappointment than of divine providence. The disciples' fragility covers the texts like ground fog, to be sure, but about this fog shines the blazing sun of a sovereign who will see this collapse through. The utter fragility of the disciples, the disciples' total undependability, will be the leading lesson of this paragraph, but Jesus' prediction of this undependability is just as important as the disciples' undependability. I think this will unfold here for you. So put yourself in Peter's shoes. What matters more to you? Maintaining your idealized view of yourself when Jesus challenges it? Or that Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And he lets you see that fact. Back in your own shoes, what matters more to you? That you maintain your image of yourself to those around you? Or that Jesus isn't threatened by your very flawed and partial self-knowledge? As we read on, we see Peter's ideal self beginning to crumble. In Jesus' hour of great need for companionship, Peter and James and John fall asleep in the garden. When the moment of crisis comes and the mob comes to seize Jesus, Peter lands a sword blow on the high priest's servant's ear. Have you ever wondered about that. Like, could it be that Peter was not the swordsman warrior that he fancied himself to be? Because this seems like a pretty flubbed attack. (laughs) And on top of that, Jesus rebukes Peter for drawing the sword in the first place. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Peter fled. But Peter circled back, and he followed at a distance to the high priest's courtyard to watch 
from a distance. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too uh, are with him for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The ideal is shattered. The self-image broken. Peter, as he knew himself to be, Peter, as he wanted to be, failed. Put yourself in Peter's shoes now. What matters more to you? Maintaining your idealized view of yourself, even when it's challenged, even when you've failed to live up to your ideal, or that Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Back in your own shoes, what matters more to you? That you maintain your image of yourself to those around you? Or the fact that Jesus is neither ignorant nor threatened by your very flawed and partial self-knowledge. Jesus knows. What matters more? That you know yourself or that you know that Jesus knows you? A couple of weeks ago, um, when Dick lectured on untangling guilt and shame, he noted that we experience shame when we fail to live up to what we want to be. As I have worked on this lecture, I have thought that it could be alternatively titled A Redemptive Encounter with Shame. Dick also spoke of our need to clarify our heroes and our morals. Who do we want to be like? What do we believe is good? When we engage in the work of clarifying our heroes, we engage in the work of confronting our idealized view of ourself. The me that I think I should be. The me that I want to be. Dick also recommended filling ourselves with the narratives of fools that the Bible offers, and this is what I have tried to do tonight for us, to fill us up with Peter's story, to imaginatively engage with the idealized view that Peter had of himself, and by the power of story, 
to help us begin to confront our own idealized views of ourselves. But the story's not over, and really we have not yet remembered the most truly heroic moment in Peter's life. How do you think Peter slept that night, that night that he denied Jesus three times? Did he sleep at all? How long did the bitter weeping last? Matthew's gospel leaves us there with weeping Peter. But John's gospel gives us another chapter in Peter's story. According to John, on the morning of Jesus' resurrection, Mary Magdalene found the stone of the tomb rolled away. She ran to Peter and John to tell them. And the men dashed to the tomb to see what had happened. John includes the detail that he ran faster than Peter. (laughs) He got to the tomb first. He peered in, but it was Peter, huffing up behind, who entered the tomb first and investigated. Linen cloths, the face cloth that had wrapped Jesus' head, folded and placed on its own. So deliberate. But they didn't see Jesus there. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, and John writes of two more resurrection appearances in the company of the disciples, but with no particular mention of Peter. So are Jesus and Peter okay with each other? We're just going to like sweep Peter's denial under the rug? One question that has turned over and over in my imagination for years is what made the difference between Peter and Judas? They both failed Jesus profoundly in different ways, yes, but they both turned their back on Jesus. Judas's final course of action to hang himself indicates that he utterly despaired and could see nothing but his failure. Was Peter in danger of this outcome too? Was he tempted to despair? What I know from my own struggle with shame over seemingly less consequential matters leads me to think, yes. The death of an idol at the heart of our identity does not die easily. Finally, at some point in the blurry days of grief and shock and then marvelous disbelief and then relief over the amazement of the resurrection, Simon Peter announces, I'm going fishing. You might have something to talk about with Peter if you've ever gone fishing and come home skunked. No catches. Empty-handed. 
I want to retell this um, final gospel encounter as I have imagined it and have written it in a poem. I'm not going to put the poem up because I think you'll just squint at it. Um, so I just want you to hear it, take it in. It's, it would be hard to read. Come and have breakfast. How can I explain the grip of shame? I was the first one to the grave. I saw your linens lying there, face cloth folded, left as if you'd lingered. Twice already you had shown yourself. Now not only waves, but walls obey you. I watched Thomas thread his disbelief through the nail hole hollows in your hands. Yet I hung back, craved and dreaded you in equal parts, watched you watching me, wondered at your waiting. But again, you left, and all I knew to do was what I've always done, shove out and hope for the best, toss nets all night, fight the current, chase the tide, my hands can coil a rope in spite of me. I worked silent until dawn, and just before the darkness cracked, saying to myself, one more chance, one more, I glimpsed at sea my cowardice and the rope around my neck, my shame, the millstone, the sea, a black tunnel, and the pinpoint boat bottom rocking above. When it had been time, I couldn't hold the line. Then a voice from the shore pulled my thoughts from the depths, that millstone, a fish on deck thrashing wildly. We tossed nets to the other side where light flashed, catch of a lifetime, and I let go. The Lord, John cried, and I leapt, swam schooled and singular, reached shore where you bent to stoke the charcoal fire. Breathless, I watched my betrayal grow bright again, my courage once more up in smoke. Oh, for the ash upon my face and tongue. Oh, to tear this soaked cloak in two and recount for you each fault and failure. I am no rock, no fisher of men. I am Satan, as you said. I failed you once. I will fail you again. And still you met me with your knowing gaze, stretched out fish and bread across the flame, held it out insistent, took hold my hand, spoke my name. 
When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Peter's moment of true heroism, I think, and what makes him an appropriate hero for each of us is when, in his grief, Over his own failure, that third denial, that third, do you love me? He stakes himself not on what he knows about himself. What on earth does he know about himself? But on the fact that Jesus knows. Lord, you know all things. Jesus knows him. Jesus knows if and how much and how up and down Peter loves him. And this is enough. Peter finally received, we might say, the gift of not knowing himself. And I dare say he knew himself then better than ever. So that's where I want to stop and um, give us a minute to just maybe let let some thoughts sift. Um, and then I'd love to talk together about anything that comes to mind for you, things you want to process or questions you want to raise. You're free to leave at any point, um, and I'll stick around as long as as long as as long as I can. <laughs> it was during um, yeah during my time at Regent College I was doing um, the integrative project in the arts and theology that they have there working on a series of poems and um, 
I don't remember which which Peter poem came first, but and actually Ben has written a you've written a song about Peter, and your song I think played into my process a little bit too, just like um, getting curious about I think trying to navigate my own inner world and being like. I need help. I need help doing this and turning to, yeah, turning to Peter and letting myself imagine kind of like, what would it be like to get each step of the way? (laughs) How do you get from here to here to here? If it's anything like what I know goes on inside of me. And, um, yeah. So, and during that time, um, uh, the church that we were going to had a weekly early morning prayer meeting where um, we would, yeah, the the pastor's wife led it and she would lead us through uh, Lectio Divina, holy reading, doing really short passages, reading them again and again and praying with them and listening for, yeah, how both what you hear in the text and what you hear um, in in your own heart, what the spirit is bringing up, hearing what other people are noticing. And so that way of approaching scripture uh, was really exciting to me. It, I felt like it gave the Bible back to me after a long stretch of academic approach to um, the Bible. been uh, fruitful ground for prayer for me is to pay attention to how I imagine Jesus's eyes like what kind of gaze do I see there like is that a oh well see told you so <laughs> no, I don't think that probably wasn't quite it you know <laughs> why do I think that and uh, what was what was Jesus's gaze like then yeah, Joshua. Just a more of a comment. Um, yeah, just thinking about conversations with people um, through the years here, and just a refrain in different parts of for, for different potential future things, whether it's getting married or becoming a father or just accepting. Like, it's not just like, oh, I would never deny you. But people say, like, mm-hmm. oh, I can't. I can't do this. I, I could never do that. Like, mm-hmm. and it's just mm-hmm. a sense of their self and what their capacities are, or what they're capable of, mm-hmm. is small. Yeah. Um, you know, and that um, they yeah. sort of preemptively exempt themselves from things they genuinely want. Yeah. You know, or genuinely desire. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, they're just like, oh, you don't. 
you know, I kind of love people say, like, oh, you don't really, if you got to know the real me, you, you know, you hate me or you think I'm disgusting. And I was like, you can't tell me what I <laughs> think about you. Like, you don't know. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. you know, I'm, and mm-hmm. so I don't know. It's just like quite a, there's quite a lot of ways to take mm-hmm. the gift of not knowing yourself, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's just, yeah, it's pretty, it's even the second time hearing it, but going through Peter's life, like how you could possibly, like if you experienced something, mm-hmm. connect connect with him. And, mm-hmm. You know, just thinking about a fisherman becoming, mm-hmm. and so that's the quote-unquote first pope, or, or the, you mm-hmm. know, um, yeah. just a leader in the church. Yeah. I'm not mm-hmm. um, uh, He would have probably said, no, I, I could never do that. Yeah. Like I, I could never be. Mm-hmm. I could never preach mm-hmm. the first first sermon or yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I just there's something yeah, there's something very um, there's a gentleness to this that I think can also mm-hmm. give mm-hmm. people some like literally put courage in people mm-hmm. to try mm-hmm. try something. So anyway, mm-hmm. just thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marty. Yeah, I noticed a couple things I've never noticed before in the text. Yeah. You're talking about it. And um, when Jesus predicted Peter's denial, um, and and Peter said, you know, uh, even though they all deny you, I won't. I, it just struck me this verse um, when Jesus said, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Yeah. So he's talking about a future when they'll... They will mm-hmm. be together when they will yeah. be with him, or they will be mm-hmm. his people. Yeah, and, and that too. I mean, you mentioned that you know that that what should be encouraging in that passage is Jesus's knowledge of mm-hmm. them, that Jesus knew, mm-hmm. Jesus foreseeing mm-hmm. and knowing them, yeah. but knowing them, but then also saying, "And I will go before you." It's yeah. not going to be the end. It's not going to be over. Yeah, it's really interesting. And you wonder. Yeah. If they, gospel in particular there's extended the extended care for the disciples that Jesus is doing to shore them up in advance <laughs> to weather what's coming and uh, yeah but I think it's it's instructive to realize like yeah, we fixate on the bad news don't we <laughs> you know and to the exclusion of words of profound hope and so yeah, I think one of the gifts we can give one another too is being like, there was there was more more to that than you're remembering right now. Yeah. <laughs> there was, um, that's a gift of, of friendship, I think. But it also struck me at the verse in that same passage, which I'd never noticed before, is after Peter saying, "Even if I should die with you, I will never disown you." And all the other disciples said the same. Yeah. I never noticed that before. Yeah. They all said yeah. the same. Yeah. Of course, the story is so much about Peter, but mm-hmm. I've, mm-hmm. I've just never noticed that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Love when those happen. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. Yeah. The same goes for community and the relationship Yeah. I found it encouraging. Thank you. I think, mm-hmm. especially after two years of uh, the pandemic, you know, not being in church as much and inside mm-hmm. with yourself and, mm-hmm. and realizing you're not who you thought you were. Yeah. Um, and probably overwhelmed by that realization, at least I know I've been. Yeah. And the questions of, um, is it I? I actually can't distinguish myself from Judas or Peter. Yeah. I, the Lord knows. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm not Judas. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just encouraging to know mm-hmm. that in his knowledge, um, mm-hmm. there is a plan beyond um, uh, our propensity to mm-hmm. deny him. Mm-hmm. Uh, habitually. Mm-hmm. Three times. Yes, Nikayla. I think one of the helpful <clears throat> things about the two stories of Peter Christian the first word. Oh, we fished all night. <laughs> and then the second account is where there's no question of instruction. Mm-hmm. And the next one that Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but just in in when we think we know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't know. Yeah. yeah. You don't know who you are. You don't know what I you know. know. Yeah. Uh, just how refreshing it is mm-hmm. in the church of Peter to be like, okay, let's do it. Yeah. And just the humor also. Mm-hmm. And that the the redemption even in the action how we respond to the work that's mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ben just your poem about that encounter where he jumps jumps out of the boat and swims the shore is it's what highlights something for me that it's, it's, it's Maybe not so much Jesus. There's not so much Peter being afraid that Jesus won't accept him or forgive him. It's, it's really he's confronting his own self-hatred. Yeah. <laughs> he's feeling like, it's his own rejection of himself. I mean, he, if he was really afraid that Jesus was had returned to the beach to condemn him, mm-hmm. he would have jumped into the water and swum to see Jesus. Mm-hmm. 
gospel i think i mean this is the danger of how fast we read through things like we lose the sense of the time that must have passed between these different Mm -hmm. resurrection appearances and yeah i think there i i did find myself wondering if um well i think in john's telling like there's some dramatic tension that's building up here (laughs) and is uh is Jesus like basically letting Peter deal with himself? You know, like Jesus isn't being like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, it's like I think he's, I think he's like letting Peter kind of work it out a little bit with himself. And um, yeah, but Peter on Easter morning, as soon as possible. Yeah. Sure Peter knows that like, I'm okay with it. And that's how it's told, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Peter and John are there, and then they leave, and then Mary Magdalene's still there, and Jesus shows up. You know, yeah. so it's like, it seems like, man, they just missed him. <laughs> <laughs> and then the gardener shows up, <laughs> who is not the gardener, you know. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. A really funny mm-hmm. thing is falling on the heels of Peter saying, "You know everything. You know I love you." And mm-hmm. he, he mentioned it earlier. He says, "Like, what about John?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus yeah. is like, "It doesn't matter. You follow me." If, yeah. It, it, it lets, yeah. I, I think Jesus said, "Like, it doesn't matter. What if John doesn't even die?" Yeah. Like What's that. it to you? Yeah. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. actually, Peter. I guess it was Peter started a rumor that spread mm-hmm. that John was never gonna mm-hmm. <laughs> right right. And I, learned that I was like Peter started that rumor yeah. for the whole church after that moment. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. So funny. yeah, yeah. Uh, this commentator Frederick Bell Bruner that I was working with, he also points out, you know, like in in Jesus calling Peter at the big, you know, from the boats and come and follow me. I'll make you fisher, fisher of men. 
there's this invitation to follow. And then, actually, I, I, I don't know biblical Greek, but when, uh, when he says, get behind me, Satan, there's a very similar linguistic kind of structure there. And then, again, at the end in John's Gospel, you get this follow me. And, yeah, I think there is, like, this unfolding theme or the unfolding learning process for Peter of, like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And, yeah, to have to hear, at least in one occasion, it means get behind me. (laughs) And, yeah, so... Mm, yeah, Christopher. You made an allusion, uh, it was from Bruner, about the way in which Peter's rockiness could be an allusion to the Sermon on the Mount. I was wondering mm. to what extent, like how thick do you think that allusion goes uh, mm-hmm. in terms of what Peter's self-identity was meant to be? Yeah, to yeah. so that allusion was my own, okay. kind of... Uh, Mainly wanting to emphasize that, like, the rock the church is built on is Jesus. Paul goes to some lengths to say, like, there's no foundation other than Christ, you know. And so that's some of that exegetical interpretive debate between Roman Catholic thinkers and Eastern Orthodox and Protestants about uh, yeah, like what is being said there exactly about Peter as the rock, and in what way is Peter a rock? And um, yeah, Bruner sort of uh, yeah, he is very much on like Jesus is the rock, and it's Peter's rock likeness um, that that gives him that place in the foundation of the church. Um, yeah. I guess it just struck that, me more how, uh-huh. as you were painting Peter's story, how much it evokes the Beatitudes mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and how his life is mm-hmm. um, yeah. even like animated by attention with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, even the cutting yeah. off of the... The servant's ear versus the turning the other cheek. Like that's interesting. Seen, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's mm. more of what I was wondering. That's interesting, that. yeah. It was more of a mm-hmm. thicker. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I did find myself, you know, asking, like, what, like, what does it take for Peter to realize that he's poor in spirit? Mm-hmm. What's it going to take for me <laughs> to realize that I'm poor in spirit? Um, so there's a a layer right. of the Sermon yeah. on the Mount. But. Mm-hmm. Yes, Dick? Yeah, I, obviously, especially with what uh, Ben was raising, I have this strange theory that, that we shouldn't, and we know we shouldn't, we, we can have a, a kind of circle of permissible sin that goes mm-hmm. around us. Mm-hmm. That we can behave and sin in these ways and we do not shock ourselves. Mm-hmm we get kind of used to it. I'm not saying this ought to be true. Right. <laughs> yeah. At all. But, but, but we get sort of used to it. We get habituated to it. Mm-hmm. too much. But then, sometimes we step outside of that circle of permissible sin and do things that we don't do. And we don't. And this is where Peter doesn't do this. But he did. 
sophisticated in how we assert yeah. that, you know, but that's basically the sentiment. That, yeah, Marty. Yeah, I was just thinking too, when we say, I can't I can't forgive myself or we say, God couldn't God couldn't forgive me mm-hmm. for either my guilt or my shame, mm-hmm. we're, we're really saying that Christ's death is not sufficient mm-hmm. for for this. Yeah, you know, we're, we're we're really casting aspersions on the efficacy of Jesus' yeah. sacrifice, and and that's mm-hmm. and then that's to be repented of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I need to repent of that. Yeah, because Jesus' death was absolutely sufficient for yeah. any repentant sinner. Yeah, <laughs> so long yeah. as we lift empty hands and say, "Forgive me." Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I think we we make special the thing about us that is not special at all. Like it's actually yeah, like we make yeah that thing the most interesting thing about us somehow, at least to us, and it's corrosive. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I like when you um, brought attention to Peter's characteristics or experiences or mm-hmm. situations, and one of them mm-hmm. was uh, maybe surprising moments of clarity of faith or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So I just say um, that as much as we can be surprised at the sin we commit that we never thought we would, also the we can be surprised at the fruit the Holy Spirit bears in our life that yeah. we just didn't yeah. know we were possible of, mm-hmm. capable of, mm-hmm. um, and just having that hope mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that and yeah. expecting to be surprised by the work of God in our life and looking for that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm glad you said that, and I think there's uh, you get more of that in the Book of Acts too. You know, these surprising, amazing things that Peter's part of. Like being able to sleep peacefully chained between soldiers and like be let out of a prison sort of missing the fact that it's an angel that's like what's going on in a person that that is so? (laughs) Some holy indifference. Some holy indifference. (laughs) And as you said in the beginning, I mean, the Bible is, I mean, one of the things that I find most convincing of, about its trustworthiness is the honest the honest stories, as you said, of yeah. just honest stories about all the heroes of the faith and their mm-hmm. folly. And they're in Acts when Paul has to rebuke Peter publicly for mm-hmm. refusing to eat with Gentiles because he mm-hmm. fell back mm-hmm. into yep. um, yep. Judaistic mm-hmm. um, tendencies and, yep. and the national Jewish nationalism and Mm-hmm. And uh, had to be had to be publicly reviewed, but th- that story is there for us to see. You know, right. Peter still <laughs> still blew it sometimes. Yeah, even when he was a leader in the church, even when he was basically feeding feeding Jesus sheep, mm-hmm. he still mm-hmm. at times blew yeah. it. And he'd had a personal mystical yeah. sort of experience Absolutely. of God saying, "This is fine, That's Peter." Right. And yet it took yet, failure, yeah. rebuke from another leader, That's right. That's you know. Right. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's like his own, yeah. what happened in his own experience didn't solidify it. Yeah, interesting. On its own accord. Yeah, yeah. Christopher. Um, as you were saying that, I was reminded that I'm thinking a lot about social identity mm. and how we constitute our social imagination about who we are and the stories mm-hmm. we tell. Um, and I think this is also a good reminder that the stories and sense of identity that we have as a culture and as a people, whether we're in the church or at any sort of level from national and downward, yeah. we need to be careful that we're, we are not confident in like what that story is and what mm. identity is in that, mm. as a part of that story. Mm. Um, and the gift of things being revealed. Um, I'm, uh, I'm reminded of, I just read a book on um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it was surprising to learn that in the, like, 20 years after World War II, 
in Germany, he was very much viewed as almost a traitor. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until many years mm -hmm. later that, like, mm. this thing mm -hmm. came out and the self-identity of Germany became, like, and there was some reconciliation and repentance mm. um, that they were able to, that mm -hmm. his sort of perception change. Mm. Mm. Um, so it's a good reminder, I think, that mm. as this applies to ourselves, it can also apply to our mm. communities, to our... Mm. Yeah, identities um, mm. all on that spectrum. Yes, Joshua. There's a, uh, it's just almost maybe kind of a, um, a verse that's helpful for me uh, is in First John, and it uh, it talks about when our hearts condemn us, God doesn't condemn us, uh, and. Because yeah, God reason, is bigger than our hearts. Right? Well, yeah, so it's the, the, yeah, it's literally, yeah. but it's not like. Because God's really kind and loving and gracious, but it's just because He knows everything. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting, like that God knows. Yeah. That John just makes a connect. I think of like God knowing everything as the hairs on our head, and, like, the lottery tickets, and the future, and, <laughs> like every like you know, like just like accumulation of facts. Yeah. And, yeah. But John connects it, and I think it's like very. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we think we know ourselves. Yeah. And reject ourselves, like mm -hmm. our heart confesses. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, like John was saying, like, actually, God knows everything. Mm -hmm. and, and he, he knows your heart, and, you know, yeah. Yeah, he, he knows more than he does. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I just, mm -hmm. it's a helpful mm -hmm. thing for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's yeah. counterintuitive because mm -hmm. we always assume the more someone knows, the less likely they will be to forgive us. Yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> Thank you all very much for your attention and participation in this evening. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yes. Yeah.